The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank held their annual meetings this week, uh, online, of course, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And that has prompted a lot of discussion this week about the burgeoning debt crisis uh, in Africa and also in poor countries and developing regions around the world. And that has also sparked an enormous amount of back and forth among, let's see, all the contested parties, we'll say. Earlier this week, Ken Ofori Atad, Ghana's finance minister, he wrote in the Financial Times, and he went after everybody. He attacked the private creditors. He went after the United States for blocking special drawing rights at the International Monetary Fund. And he also had China in his sights. Let me read you a quote from his uh, op-ed in the Financial Times. China is negotiating with Africa on a country-by-country rather than continental basis, which is blocking progress. That makes Western creditors reluctant to offer concessions for fear that released resources will simply be transferred to Beijing. Some of China's state-owned financial institutions are not officially included in the G20 debt suspension. Again, that is a very pointed criticism coming from an African finance minister. Meantime, in Beijing, the, the Chinese foreign ministry thought that this would be a good time to really strike back at criticisms coming not only from the United States, but also from the World Bank and a number of other stakeholders in the debt process, including in Africa. And Zhao Lijian, the Chinese foreign ministry spokesman, really did not spare any words. Let me quote from him in his press briefing this week. As for the false accusations made by some countries, let's kind of, we understand who those some countries are. That's the United States and some European countries and media against China, I would like to point out that if we break down African countries' foreign debt, multilateral financial institutions and commercial creditors hold more than three-quarters of the total and so bear greater responsibility for debt relief. He really wants to try and push back that this burden falls on China and just try and change the narrative away from China and the debt trap and predatory lending. And when we associate the words African debt, they come up with China. Now, also, Zhao really wanted to go after the United States in particular. And the following day in his press briefing, he really wanted to single out the question about BRI, Belt and Road Initiative debt. Let's listen to what he said through a translator. Pompeo openly regards lying, stealing, cheating as the American glory. It's like a recorder playing the anti-China cassette non-stop. The so-called debt trap is just another example of America's lying diplomacy. So far, not a single country participating in BRI cooperation has fallen into debt difficulties because of BRI projects. On the contrary, many have made positive comments. We believe that any objective and unbiased observer will have the same correct conclusion about the BRI. On how to evaluate in cooperation with China, the countries and people 
who are engaging in cooperation with China are in the best position to say. They and they have made clear their answer. They have been expanding cooperation with China and have signed more than 130 cooperation documents on BRI with China. In front of these facts, any smearing and attacking are just futile. So going after the United States, also going after critics on the Belt and Road. But we thought, for the purposes of our discussion today, that we would widen the focus beyond Africa and really kind of follow up on what Zhao said in terms of the rest of the world, particularly those countries that are in the BRI. And there's one country in particular that stands out, and that is Venezuela. And you will immediately understand the parallels between Venezuela and what's happening in Africa, at least in some countries in Africa, when you hear some of the statistics. Let me just read a, a few details here, Cobus. Between 2007 and when the late President Hugo Chavez died in 2013, the China Development Bank lent Venezuela just shy of 40 billion dollars. I mean, that's an astonishing number. Uh, that figure far surpasses Chinese official energy finances to any other country in the world at the time. And then, even after Chavez's death, when his successor Nicolas Maduro came to power, the Chinese continued to lend even more money, in again absolutely enormous sums, somewhere around twenty billion dollars between 2013 and 2017. So altogether, just over sixty-two billion dollars or so of Chinese money went to Venezuela between. 2007 and 2019. Now that's about 45% of China's total lending to all of South America. So interestingly, there are some very fascinating parallels to this in Africa, especially Angola. When we consider Angola accounted for 31% of Chinese debt stock in Africa and 41% of all the African debt service due to official Chinese lenders this year. So Cobus, interesting parallels between Venezuela. And Angola, and maybe Africa writ large. Yes,、um, and another parallel is that China Development Bank, which was a major player in Venezuela, was also a major player in Angola, and、um, it's officially considered a commercial lender rather than rather than a state lender, which means that it's like rescheduling or, or re, you know kind of rejiggering the 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 loans with Angola had to be、um, negotiated separately,、um, you know, kind of away from the G20. Um, G DSSI initiative,、um, you know. So just adding another layer of complication to to all of this.、Um, it's the you know kind of the the Venezuela situation is so reminiscent of the African situation. Not only for all of these reasons, but also because you know because the, the these loans are backed by oil. It it also means that kind of the national fortunes. Depends on where the oil price stands,、um, and therefore it's also affected by wider kind of calculations that are around climate change and trying to move away from oil. So it's it's fascinating to see, you know, kind of there's this kind of parallelism parallelism between the two. Well, let's see if there are lessons that can be learned from China's engagement in Venezuela and how it's managed its debt portfolio there, and if we can extract any of the lessons there for Africa. And we have. Again, we're just so happy to have Matt Furchin back.、Uh, Matt is the head of the global China re- head of global China research at the Mercator Institute for China Studies in Berlin.、Uh, previously, he was a scholar at the Carnegie Chunhua Center for Global Policy in Beijing and an associate professor in the Department of International Relations at Tsinghua University, also in Beijing.、Uh, most recently, he wrote an article for the U.S. Institutes of Peace called "China-Venezuela Relations in the 21st Century." From overconfidence to uncertainty, I'll have a link for that in the show notes. Matt, a very good morning. Great to have you back on the show. 
Good morning. It's great to be back with you both. So I tried to kind of set it up there to lay out what's been happening in Venezuela, something you've been focusing on for many, many years, and see if there's any parallels to what's happening in Africa. Let me start with a quote from your paper. Uh, You said Venezuela's long, slow-motion descent into economic, social, and political crises has exposed the underlying miscalculations and weak points of China's financial and diplomatic position in Venezuela and in Latin America more generally. Can you walk us through what some of those miscalculations were that led to the Chinese walking away from $62 billion of debt? Yeah, well, the you know the background to this is really in a in a different era. Uh, it was in the midst of the commodity boom, so it was at a time when China was making a lot of outreach to commodity rich countries in South America. You'll recognize this in in many African cases as well. Uh, so early years of the the two thousands in the area, even before the financial crisis. Uh, lots of commodity-related trade uh, deals were being made. And then, of course, uh, the China Development Bank stepped in big time in the case of, of Venezuela uh, with these oil-backed loans. But the other side of this was political. Uh, at the time, Hugo Chavez is the leader in Venezuela. He is extremely active uh, with his oil diplomacy in the region with other countries in South America and and the Caribbean, but also looking to expand Venezuela's oil partners, uh, originally very dependent on exports to the United States. So China fit into that category of economic cooperation for Chavez, but also as as a political partner. And and so you get this sort of dual approach of both uh, a sort of economic and a political and a diplomatic outreach that sort of seemed to fit both sides' interests at the time. Clearly, though, things have changed quite dramatically in the years since. You mentioned in in the in the report that um, even as things were really going south in 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 um, Venezuela, and it became clear that you know like how bad Chavez has been for for the economy as a whole, and then also for this for the state oil company, China doubled down and and you know kind of sent even more support, um, more financial support. Why do you think they did that? I think there were high level signals. Uh, originally, this again was decisions made at the top of the China Development Bank uh, in cooperation with Chinese diplomats. This truly seemed to them to be a situation in which all things in terms of China's interests, its economic interests, its diplomatic interests, they were all firing at once. So the idea that things really couldn't go wrong seemed to be embedded. Um, And this was what originally attracted me to the situation. Um, I may have explained this to you in a previous discussion, but in one of my first discussions uh, with Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, Latin America folks, they asked me to come talk. This was 2012, I think, talk uh, about risk. Uh, There was a growing interest in political risk. in, in China at the time, and they said, well, you know, come and give us a, a, disc- a talk about that. And, and I did. And I said, OK, let's talk about Venezuela, because it seems awfully risky to me on, on many different levels. And this was, uh, you know, Chavez had already gotten sick, but he was still in charge. And, and they were sort of incredulous. Like, what do you mean it's risky? Like, there's every indication. Uh, there is a politicization uh, of the oil industry. Uh, Chavez has taken over PDVSA, the national oil uh, 
company in a way that uh, is designed for his uh, political purposes. Uh, there's political polarization. There's rising tensions with the United States. And this was before the, the, you know, the oil price crash, before Chavez died, and things have only gotten worse. And so in the, mean, in the meantime, though, the Chinese calculation was, well, they've got the oil. We need the oil. Uh, our banks are making, are making foolproof deals. Uh, risk-proof deals, though the oil, the the um, loans are backed uh, by guaranteed oil sales, uh, and in the meantime, uh, the the guy in office is our guy. Uh, they continued to make that calculation, but with greater and greater reservations uh, after Chavez died and Maduro came in. That's absolutely remarkable that they didn't have a more sophisticated understanding of risk analysis. Do you get the sense since you've had a chance to work with these people and to talk to them? that it's, it's a reflection of maybe the more insular culture, that is, they don't work with advisory firms, external forces, external consulting firms, agencies, whatnot, to provide that intelligence for them. I mean, you can figure that out by picking up the New York Times every day for a year that, to know that it's a shaky investment. What about that culture It kind of insulates them from that understanding about risk? Because I think that's played out in other parts of the world as well. Yeah. Well, it's a great question, I, and I think this has changed. Um, but I think the original calculation, there were very powerful people at the China Development Bank. And you have to remember, this is one of the, the bank's first big forays anywhere in the world. You know, they weren't that prominent in, in Africa. They hadn't really started doing a lot of the major energy lending in other regions, including in, in Russia yet. So this was their first big foray into a region and into a, a specific country that they didn't know much about, but they're extremely powerful people at the China Development Bank, a bank that had already become extremely powerful and successful and wealthy through its lending processes domestically. So it, I think it was an institution, it was just the too big to say no to. Uh, all of the, the reasons seem to line up. Well, you know, Venezuela's got the oil, China needs it. Um, you can build in these uh, oil for loans deals in a way that seemingly protects them from, from political risk. Uh, and just, a, I think, a, a sort of arrogance and an ignorance about the details of what was going on in Venezuela. But they didn't really have to listen. They didn't have to go very far to to understand that it should have been risky. And this included uh, Venezuela's neighbors. Everyone at the time, this is 2011, 2012, was sort of asking me, like, why? What are, what are they doing? Why are they doing this? Um, and, and so I think it really is, uh, it, to me, it was always like watching a train wreck. Uh, and that's sort of where we are now. I, I think this has changed, though, in terms of calculations in, in other countries, certainly China's sophistication and certain institutions, I imagine, the banks, uh, the CDB, maybe the Export-Import Bank, uh, but also some of the commercial banks um, are getting much more sophisticated about this and doing some of the cons- consulting that you're asking about. But, but this one is really an albatross uh, that is really hanging around China's neck. Do you have any a kind of an idea of of what the discussions are um, among you know Chinese experts about how to deal with the problem? Like you know, kind of what what kind of either rescheduling or, or kind of like you know, kind of changing the the terms of the loans will actually look like, and what the options are are for Chinese lenders. 
Yeah, I think this to me is still the million dollar question of what are the real options in my sense. And this is why I think our discussion here about putting this in a comparative setting is is interesting and important is because my sense is the head has been in the sand of like, what can you do? You don't know what's going to happen because you in the case of Venezuela, because you don't know who's going to be in charge. There are discussions among the opposition in Venezuela, and these have been around for a while to, to basically declare the debt that that Chavez and Maduro incurred with China as illegitimate. This is an odious debt. So they're going to potentially take uh, a legal tactic which would declare the debts illegitimate. So if this is what China is faced with, well, then, you know, what what do you how do you even make a calculation about that? It's not really a technical discussion about what's possible. Um, Then you have a country that's in meltdown. Uh, and and it's not included in these broader discussions uh, at the G20 level or the World Bank level about restructuring lending. So to me, this is really one of the, the things that has struck me is that Venezuela is not in the set of discussions that is taking place in Africa and elsewhere about China's role and actually other multilateral institutions' role in restructuring the debt. I think it needs to be. Otherwise, it just sits there and languishes and any lessons that are learned anywhere else aren't applied to Venezuela. I think there is basically a let's wait it out and hope for the best uh, planning that's still sort of predominant in China. That is incredible. (laughs) $60 billion and the best plan is let's just wait it out. I mean, wow. Okay. I mean, because we haven't heard much about it in the past few years. It's just kind of sit there. No one's really moving on it. I mean, people in Africa are concerned about this idea of asset seizures, that if China can't collect on its debt, it's either going to do debt for equity swaps or it's going to do it's going to actually seize collateral in exchange for the debt. Have you seen any of that movement in Venezuela with regards to the debt that's there? Yeah, there were rumors uh, a few years back about some sort of a swap for an, an island. Um, I'm sure that there are discussions about greater upstream access for Chinese firms. This has always been the big hope. Uh, China wanted to change that relationship from one that was largely about trading oil to one that would give Chinese firms much more access to upstream resources, especially in in the Orinoco. Um, All of that, I think, has also been put on hold in part because of the overall uh, crisis in in Venezuela, especially with uh, PDVSA, the national oil company. Um, So even if China were to get assets, then you end up with a country in complete meltdown. But the other part of this is the U.S. So um, this has become much more politicized now. It is in the um, sort of caught in the crosshairs. The China-Venezuela relationship is in the crosshairs also of the U.S.-China relationship. Um, The fact that Venezuelan uh, voters, people that have moved to the United States, are potentially factoring into the U.S. elections. I mean, this is a deeply sensitive issue now. So if China is seen as coming in and doing anything to flex its muscle in Venezuela, this really risks being caught up even more so in the U.S.-China tensions. To which extent do you, do you think that thinking in China around you know around the Venezuela issue, particularly um, you know many years ago um, in the two thousands, do you think that there was a, a case where economic thinking was clouded by geopolitical thinking? That there was you know kind of that that aspirations to to have more of a footprint and more of a say in South America ended up kind of fog fogging up you know some of the kind of analyses around the risk involved. 
I, I do. I think there, but I, I think it was always a combination. Uh, I think the political component was there. The thing you always heard was that the fundamentals are so strong that this, you know, again, China has, China needs the oil. Venezuela has the oil. China has the money. Venezuela needs the money to invest in the oil company and wants to diversify uh, its, its energy relations. On top of that, you get this sort of trend um, that if you looked at it superficially, the sort of trend toward the new left, you have Chavez in Venezuela, you have Lula in Brazil, um, you have, uh, this is all on top of the commodity boom. So you basically have these left-leaning uh, pol politicians in the regions who are willing to engage with China in discussions about South-South relations, about developing country diplomacy. Um, so it was all one package that seemingly, you know, where, where it all was interconnected and one bit supported the other. So uh, I think this, the, it was easy on the Chinese side to convince themselves that all good things went together, both the sort of commercial side of things and also the political side of things without much of an understanding of these uh, cycles that you tended to get in Latin America, both commodity-based and then sort of switches from left to right. And, you know, this, is, this brings us back to discussions about where we even got the Washington Consensus, which came out of um, the, the Latin American debt in the 1970s and, and restructuring that in the 1980s. It's interesting to me because as you're talking about what was going on in in Venezuela, I've been thinking about at the same time they were doing these deals in Angola as well and opening up the oil market there. And it doesn't seem that they were learning the lessons from Venezuela in Angola because they just piled in a lot more cash, making it seems like the same calculation in Angola. They have the oil, we have the money, they need the money. And they pioneered this thing called the Angola model, where they're going to exchange infrastructure for resources. It doesn't seem like in Venezuela that they were doing that type of deal where they were swapping infrastructure for the oil. It was purely a cash basis. Is that correct? Well, that was part of There were construction deals. So there were lots of, um, there was housing built. So this was also part of Chavez's use of the um, Chinese money for his political purposes. Uh, they built housing projects. Uh, he funded various aspects of his campaigns. They gave away Chinese products like refrigerators, um, household goods, um, you know, that was, that was tied, deal-making that was tied to the loans. There was a railway project that was also supposed to be financed as part of these deals. Uh, but it was never about principally the large infrastructure projects. But I'm sure that China was hopeful that they could do more of that. And at the time when I first started looking at this relationship back in 2010, 2011, a lot of people told me to look at the example uh, of the Angola model for or how China was trying to sort of package risk in these uh, loans for commodities or loans for infrastructure kinds of deals. So to me, we're, you know, here we are now, a decade plus later, sort of talking about where these two stand. I, and I, I think the sort of comparison also on how China might be cooperating with others in the case of Angola, but seemingly not cooperating with anyone or doing anything at all on the Venezuela side of things stands as a contrast and also just shows probably how much China uh, continues to emphasize its relations with Africa in general over those with Latin America. Do, do you foresee the resource-backed loan 
surviving intact or, or in, in its current form after, after the current debt crisis? I think it's been dead for a while. I think we've seen this both in Latin America and, and in Africa, a real divergence already. First of all, it's you know the, the idea that the China Development Bank would be the primary vehicle doing this or the Export-Import Bank, obviously doing different kinds of concessional lending, but also doing uh, lending for, for infrastructure deals, also backed by, by commodities. I think that entire model has already uh, been shifting for quite some time. The only other country in Latin America where we continue to see some of this kind of Deal making, including with the CDB, is in Ecuador, which uh, has has also some similar challenges as as Venezuela, not on the same scale, but is already asking for for new loans, uh, oil backed loans. Uh, but what we see is a lot more activity from the Chinese commercial banks, uh, and also from some of the uh, the oil companies and the SOEs, and all kinds of of a, sort of a, a much broader range of financing being done. So I think the days of these big CDB-backed loans for oil or loans for infrastructure deals are, are numbered, if not already passed. It's interesting you say that because it also seems to parallel another geopolitical shift. And this is a statistic that comes from adjunct professor David Shin from George Washington University. And I love quoting this because it says a lot about the trends. Uh, back in 2008, China sourced a third of its oil from three African countries, Republic of Congo, Sudan, and Angola. Ten years later, it only gets about, a, that's now down to about 18% just from Angola, and that number is falling. Last year, China shifted so much of its oil buying to Saudi Arabia and the Persian Gulf. Saudi oil buys went up 47%, and for much of last year and this year, China emerged as Saudi Arabia's largest oil client. The number one source of oil for China today is Russia. And so geopolitically, Russia and China remaining close, in part because China needs Russia for the Belt and Road, is all part of these shifting chess pieces on the board that's pulling away from Africa and South America. Can you give us your perspective on that picture about why oil now, maybe in a place like Venezuela, doesn't make as much sense simply because Russia and the Belt and Road countries in the Persian Gulf are now the primary sources? Yeah, well, this this also just makes me think this whole discussion is so 2010, um, a time when there was just a very different model for Chinese lending, for for oil in particular, um, the price of oil, um, the calculation that China was making in terms of feeling that it was actually making its oil import and energy security more robust to have this wide range of energy partners in Africa and, and Alaska. Latin America and elsewhere. And obviously, the calculations have shifted in terms of who is going to be reliable source uh, as an energy partner for China, both on, on uh, oil, but also on, on gas. But it also makes me think of how uh, dated this discussion is in the sense of where energy markets are headed in, in general and probably sped up greatly by the corona crisis. Uh, the fact that China is already trying to move domestically towards more non-fossil fuel sources of, of energy uh, has all kinds of targets, obviously difficulties in doing that, but then on the international stage as well, uh, trying to promote its own alternative energy sources alongside, of course, of coal-fired power plants and many others along the BRI. But this is where the game is going to be headed uh, in terms of financing sources uh, of energy for China, but also China's outbound investment and lending. Uh, it's going to be shifting uh, much more toward alternative energy sources 
resources and less uh, reliant uh, on, on fossil fuels. And that certainly puts countries in South America, in Africa, um, some of China's traditional developing country energy partners in a much more difficult situation. You know, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of the energy in, in the Venezuela-China relationship came also from this this larger narrative of, you know, of global South countries sticking together. And like, you know, China is a, is a global South country that managed to get rich. And now it, it's offering this this kind of like way around the, the normal ways that that poor countries funded infrastructure and, and made money. Um, like, where do you think that narrative is? like post pandemic and, and debt crisis now you know you know as as in in venezuela it's looking not great um but but i think that the narrative still has a lot of a lot of legs in africa um and in african thinking around around engaging with china but but i i wonder like in what form it'll survive after the current crisis i think this is the it's also just an excellent question because the the Beyond even these debt discussions, so I'm somewhat cynical about the debt discussions in part because of the Venezuela case. It's been the, the debt between Venezuela and China has been renegotiated for quite some time now. And the fundamental question of what is going to be the driver of Venezuela's growth and stability has not been addressed. What, what will China's role be in, in that? So even when we think beyond the debt restructuring in the case of Africa and elsewhere, where, where China has been doing a lot of lending or infrastructure engagement, to me, this all rests on what is the sort of longer term horizon and framework for China's engagement as a country that is going to drive development. This has always been the the key part of China's narrative is that sort of commercial and diplomatic engagement with China for countries in Africa and Latin America and, and in Asia is going to be sort of mutually beneficial in, in terms of development outcomes. But where are we now with that narrative? I think it was I think it was always already challenged back when the uh, commodity boom ended in 2013, 2014. That put a lot of commodity exporting countries in Africa and Latin America in a difficult situation. Here we are with this these lending difficulties. But what is really going to be the driver of economic growth in terms of China's commercial engagement with these regions? And I think that's a big question mark. It's also then the question of where other countries come in. So if the U.S. has mostly been complaining about China's role in Africa or in Latin America, it has basically not stepped up to offer anything else. So what is the U.S.? What is the European? What are other Asian countries? What's the vision of what their engagement will be? I don't see a great deal of activity there. We see the Blue Dot Network. We see the Build Plan. Uh, we see you know discussions about high-quality infrastructure from Japan. But I, I think this is really where we're going to be headed in the next few years is sort of what China's vision of prosperity and growth is going to be in its engagement with developing countries versus that which may come from Western countries or other Asian countries. If we were, instead of being the hosts of the China Africa podcast, if we were instead African finance ministers, presidents or prime ministers, and you were here to brief us on your experience in Venezuela and what you know about how the Chinese handled the Venezuelan experience, what would you tell us as the key takeaway and the lesson that we should know as African stakeholders? 
I think what you want is for China to care. If China cared <laughs> about the Venezuela case, they would do something differently. I think they've just been able to ignore it for the most part. It has not been in the crosshairs of the sort of the international media. Uh, yes, it's been a little bit in the in the case of of United States, but if this is this is in general the case with I think the way that the Chinese with Communist Party, the way it governs and the government in China, even for domestic matters, if they care about an issue, they then can marshal resources and do something to address it. Now, it may not always address it in the way you want it to be addressed, but you have to get their attention and it has to be something that is a focus among many other things. And that's what's so difficult uh, to basically get your particular situation and what your interests are uh, on the radar screen and be able to get people in China who can make decisions to actually focus on engaging with you in a productive way. And they don't care about $62 billion of money that is not coming back? Well, I guess they've gotten, uh, you know, two thirds of it back now. Um, uh, but I, I've always it's still been still 20 billion that's sitting I've, out there. I mean, that's still a lot of money. But I guess maybe to the Chinese, is it the fact that this is a 14 trillion dollar economy? And while 20 billion dollars sounds like a lot to Venezuela and to most African countries, you know, for the world's second largest economy, maybe that's just the cost of doing business. Yeah, and I've I've heard this um, for quite some time, and I I think uh, on the one hand I think there's some some validity to it. Um, I'm pretty sure there are a variety of people on the hook at CDB for this who certainly do care to the extent that China would still like to have oil partners all around the world, and Venezuela still having the most reserves of any country. That you don't want to just dismiss them. You have put a lot of energy and political capital into this idea of south-south engagement, and that China is a a good and trusted partner in, in development, you don't want to be completely seen as completely abandoning your partners in this. Uh, but I think in this case, they've been able to get away with more or less ignoring the plight of Venezuela, doing nothing, not being held to account. And to me, that's part of the reason why I really enjoy having these kinds of discussions, because I think it's fairly clear that there are many people in Africa in particular, but all around the world, who care about what's going on with this China-Africa lending relationship. Uh, and, I, and I hope that more will also sort of realize that there's a global scope to this, including in the Venezuela case. How is how is all of this impacting on the people of Venezuela? You know, so so if if African populations look to the Venezuelan case, and of course there's been a lot of complications in Venezuela, um, you know, including you know leadership struggles and so on. But in terms of in terms of the the kind of the the impact of these massive loans on um, on the domestic financial situation, um, are there any lessons that African populations can learn from from this situation? Yeah, certainly. I think in terms of engagement of the sort of Venezuelan people, it's so bifurcated still in terms of the, the overall polarization of that, that country. Um, I think in, we've seen some polling come out that shows that clearly there have has been a, a change in some of the attitudes towards China. But I don't really think that China is the country that's mostly held to account for Venezuela's broader problems. So whether people sort of feel that they think that uh, China 
has been a good or a bad actor in in Venezuela is not the primary consideration there. Uh, one one interesting angle of this though comes back to U.S. politics. You know, one of the things that Donald Trump continues to talk about uh, is concerns about socialism, and this is something that appeals to Venezuelans or Cubans who've moved to the United States. So there's something that resonates there. It's you know they're, they've experienced this in their own countries and have a negative attitude, and that's why they've moved to the United States. Um, but it also potentially is part of the push to show that China is a bad actor uh, in these regions. So there's some resonance there uh, with that sort of that message uh, and a sort of uh, growing unpopularity of China in certain regions. But in general, I think China has more or less managed to not take the brunt uh, of the the blame in the case of, of Venezuela. Except maybe in South Florida, right? Exactly. <laughs> Except in South Florida, right. which, yeah, who knows how important that could be in the upcoming elections. The article is China-Venezuela Relations in the 21st Century, From Overconfidence to Uncertainty. It should be absolutely essential reading for anybody looking at the debt situation, not just in South America, but also in Africa, about some of the lessons that we can extract about how China has handled this massive amount, $20 billion still remaining on a $62 billion debt in South America and Venezuela. It's written by Matt Furchin, who's the head of global China research at the Mercator Institute for Chinese Studies in Berlin. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. If people want to get in touch with you to follow what you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way for them to connect? Probably the easiest way is through Gmail, which is uh, matt.furchin at gmail.com. And are you on Twitter? Oh, yes, I am on Twitter. Okay. What's your Twitter name? I think it's just Matt at Matt Furchin. Okay. We'll double check your Twitter name and put the right one down <laughs> in, the, in the show notes. Once All again, right. Matt Furchin, really appreciate you taking the time. Great. Thanks so much. Kobus, there we have it yet another analyst debunking the debt trap narrative. Now, again, this is not to say there are not difficulties and problems and challenges in Chinese overseas debt, but there is nothing in what Matt said that comes remotely close to what Mike Pompeo at the State Department and other debt trap proponents are suggesting. This is a theory that has been so roundly debunked by the likes of Deborah Braudigam at Johns Hopkins University, the Rhodium Group, which is a great research boutique firm out of New York. They just published a report called Seeking Relief, China's Overseas Debt After COVID-19, uh, led by Agatha Krantz and Matthew Mingji and, and Drew Dalia, DeLeo. They wrote a great report. Again, no evidence of debt trap seizures of assets and things like that. Also, Kevin Acker, who's also at the Johns Hopkins University China Africa Research Initiative, he wrote an excellent paper about a few months ago called What We Know About China's Approach to Debt Relief insights from two decades of China-Africa debt restructuring. His conclusions are very similar to what Matt is saying, that there are pragmatic solutions that are realized and not these kind of colonial imperial types of solutions. That's not to say, again, in any defense of, of Zhao Lijian and the Chinese and whatnot, I'm only criticizing here the simplistic narrative that comes out of the United States predominantly about this debt trap narrative that just is not backed up by any analysis or facts. It's essentially a kind of a fantasy, I think, you know, of 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 what will probably be a v much much more messy reality. Um, one one of the one of the problems I think that that is included in all of this is, you know, so sure, like say say in 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 some case, 
you know, these these you know Chinese actors step in and then seize assets. What happens after that? You know, like what you know, what, do they then start running these assets? You know, is is like the the Zambian Broadcasting Corporation now going to be a Chinese language service? Like, you know, like what what I always wonder is is what is you know is is what, what do the people who who really who are really pushing the death trap narrative, like how do they imagine it then working? Um, you know, particularly like t- today, I wrote an intro for for our um, daily newsletter, which goes out to to our subscribers, um, detailing um, a case in South Africa where a Chinese company has been. Um, Involved in a long court battle with with a, a municipality um, outside of Johannesburg, which is essentially bankrupt, um, and you know you, you see these attempts from this Chinese company sending invoice after invoice for payments, um, you know that just go ignored, and then finally kind of stepping in, going to court, you know, kind of getting a big, you know, a, a big kind of successful settlement, you know, kind of showing that the municipality is in arrears, you know, for millions and millions of dollars. And then you're like, okay, so what next? You know, do do they just like now like seize the municipality's sewage treatment plant? Like, you know, like how how does that actually work? Um, you know, I think the reality, especially now with with the current debt crisis, is the reality is going to be a lot messier and also a lot more kind of politically influenced. I think the fact is is that we actually don't know what they're doing because so much of it is done behind closed doors and there's no transparency here but one of the takeaways that we can glean from all of this looking at Venezuela what's happened in Laos this is a, a, a situation we're going to be covering in an upcoming podcast for the same reason that we talked to Matt which is to look at how the Chinese are doing this in other countries and to see if we can apply lessons or at least some patterns to what they're doing in Africa but even in Africa we have not seen consistency what the deal supposedly that was done with Angola is very different than the deal that's being done with Zambia is different than what's being done with with Kenya because the loans are different. The players are different. The amounts are different. The resources backed for it are different. Each loan is unique to the other. And I think when we use these debt trap narratives, it implies there is a one size fits all. And there is no evidence right now to suggest that there is a single approach to their debt relief strategy or their debt forgiveness cancellation, whatever they're doing. There doesn't seem to be that consistent approach that I think so many people want to believe there is. And we've had a number of conversations with people in Beijing over the past few months for the for the podcast who've indicated that even within the policy banks, there are there's politics and they're not always on the same page. So not only is that being reflected in the markets, but it's also in the communication coming out of Beijing. That to me is a very interesting aspect as well. Yeah, yeah, you know, kind of. I, I think I think what we're going to probably see, uh, or maybe see, you know, over the next while is is a lot of reality impacting on on a narrative that the Chinese government has been pushing, which is which is again, you know, this narrative of of some kind of self self solidarity, um, y- you know. Um, you know, particularly a South-South solidarity in relation to to development, and in Africa, particularly development infrastructure. Um, you know, so so that means that the the debt is kind of woven into a political narrative, um, and it's going to be very difficult to kind of unweave it from it. Um, and the any kind of attempt to try and, and and get some kind of recourse in in the in the face of of a big default is immediately going to take on a bunch of political meanings as well. You know, ones that that I think the Chinese government frequently doesn't doesn't particularly want to get involved. 
involved in. It doesn't want to be seen to be like muscling in on some some little African country, um, because that will just be weaponized by Western critics, you know, over and over again for the next ten years. Um, so, so there, there's. You know, I, I, I'm fascinated to see kind of what what options are going to be open to the Chinese in this case, um, and you know, kind of what kind of action they can take, um, and and then how it's going to impact on on the entire narrative of their engagement in the whole, in the whole continent. So one of the theories that I've been putting out there, and I might be wrong about this, so I will freely admit that, is that in the post COVID nineteen era, the Chinese are going to be a little bit more gun shy about these big massive infrastructure loans simply because they've already lost so much money and they may not recoup. And we're looking at the standard gauge railway in Kenya on the verge of default. They've already missed one $350 million payment to the Chinese, and it doesn't look like it's sustainable. And so that you would think would give Chinese policymakers pause to invest in yet more infrastructure. However, Kobus, your colleagues at the South African Institute of International Affairs uh, just this week had a webinar which featured one of the first appearances, as far as I know, of China's new ambassador to Pretoria, Chen Xiaodong. And in his speech, which I thought was so interesting at the webinar and at this virtual discussion that they had, he was very enthusiastic about China engagement in uh, African infrastructure. This would have been the moment when someone of his stature, Ambassador Chen, of course, is the the envoy to Pretoria, but in many ways, this guy is such a heavy hitter. I think he's speaking for larger parts of the continent and larger swaths of Chinese foreign policy in Africa. He could have introduced some hesitation to say, you know, we're going to reevaluate some of our priorities, but we're always going to be there with you in spirit. You know, just a little bit of wiggle room in there to say, we're not necessarily going to be writing the big checks as we have. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. And that I thought was super interesting. So again, the rhetoric and the reality may not be aligned, but at least on the rhetoric side, someone of Ambassador Chen's stature, that he didn't actually back away from more commitment into African infrastructure, I thought was very interesting and somewhat surprising. Yeah, very interesting. And that that then kind of links to the larger point that, that you know, Xi Jinping has, has kind of hooked his... his, his you know, political fortunes to a certain extent, or, you know, at least is, you know, some of his stature to the Belt and Road Initiative um, and to that continuous connection and rolling out, um, you know, and the Belt and Road, um, you know, you can't loosen the Belt and Road from infrastructure. You know, it's so it's so fundamentally an infrastructure initiative um, that, yeah, that's it's, it's really interesting. There's, there's not, it's not very easy to retreat from that. And it's, it's going to be fascinating to see how it all rolls out. And on the geopolitical side, again, last week, we saw all of this showdown at the United nations where various African countries were lining up behind China on issues like Xinjiang, to me going forward in this much more politicized environment that we're going to see, regardless of who wins the U.S. election, Africa and their votes at the United Nations and their signatures on these kinds of letters is going to be very, very important. So maybe the currency that's used are these infrastructure deals to buy those those favors and to curry that favor and to build those relationships with African stakeholders. So we'll see. But it is going to be absolutely fascinating. These are issues that we are covering every single day. Kobus mentioned today about his column in the newsletter. We're writing this in detail. We feature analysis from people like Matt Furchin. We're breaking down the latest reports. One person said to me the other day that they're too busy to get another newsletter because they're out there actually surfing Google and getting all the news and sorting through it. And I said, actually, no, that's exactly what we do for you. 
we spend, well, I spend 10 to 12 hours a day kind of collating all through the different news, curating it, picking out the good stuff, throwing away the bad stuff. And so that you get this digest every morning, Washington time at about six in the morning, 6 p.m. out here in Asia, lunchtime in Johannesburg. And we do the hard work for you. So it's actually intended to save you time. If you'd like to give it a try, go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. $3 for three months. Try it out. Cancel anytime if you don't like it, but we think that you'll like it. And we'd love to have you part of our growing community of readers around the world. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Studinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.